Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Ben mentioned in his video um, that they were um, hoping to visit a couple of mines. I think he said that um, when he was talking about what they were going to be doing there in Bolivia. If you look on the screen, you'll see a picture of uh, two, two different gods. Two different idols. Um, the the one on your right is what um, archaeologists tell us is what they understand to be a, a fairly accurate depiction of Dagon. He is a um, he's a merman, if you will. He's a combination of a fish and a man. Uh, he was probably at the the pinnacle of um, the Philistines hierarchy of gods, um, a god of fertility, a god of procreation. The Philistines were based down near the coast, and so he obviously was looked to as the one who would bring forth sustenance and life even from the ocean. What you have on, the, on, on your left there is Teo. And if you've heard us talk about Bolivia before, Teo is, in, in Spanish the word means uncle, but Tio is understood in the mining areas of Bolivia and Peru. They will tell you that they believe in the God of the Bible or the God of heaven above ground. But below ground, it's a different story. And so at multiple levels in these mines, going down hundreds of feet into the mountains. Um, when we were there, we, there were places where we literally had to get down and crawl on our hands and knees. To, to get through the, the mine shaft, to get through where these guys work. But on these levels at different places, you'll find Tio. And Tio is covered up with offerings of coca leaves and uh, alcohol and tobacco. And then occasionally they will bring a, a llama, a baby llama, into the mines and they will sacrifice the llama and pour the blood on Tio. It doesn't matter if it's Dagon, it doesn't matter if it's Teo, it doesn't matter what idol it is. The passage there from Isaiah chapter 46, in fact, read it along with me if you don't mind. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So, that's what Ben and Stuart may well encounter as they go into the mines there in Bolivia. In Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we saw it. It's, it's kind of the roadmap, the thematic roadmap for the entire narrative that we're going to see in Samuel. Um, and a central theme that's in that passage, if you'll just look back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, is that of reversal. Okay, just keep that theme in mind, reversal. There's already been one reversal from Eli to Samuel. From this recognized elderly priest who falls off his chair and dies, 
there's, there's a reversal as Eli, this young priest, is being called forth to carry forth the word of God. So there's been a reversal there. We will see a reversal, if you will, here in chapter 5. There will be another reversal coming subsequent later between Saul and David. Really, the whole Bible is a picture in many ways of reversal. I'll touch on that in just a minute. So what Hannah tells us in her prophecy, in her prayer there, if you look, um, just look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord makes, no, actually start in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So there's a reversal here. He says that the strong are going to be broken and the weak are going to be made strong. The destitute are going to be filled and the hungry are going to be destitute. Those that are proud and arrogant will be humbled and those that are humbly faithful will be lifted up and exalted. It's the theme that we see repeated throughout the scriptures. In chapter 5, we see another reversal. Look at it with me and just follow along as I read it. There's been a battle in chapter 4. The two unfaithful priests, which is a picture of an unfaithful nation, have been killed, Hophni and Phinehas. Their father, Eli, falls off of a chair. His weight, crushed under his own weight, breaks his neck and dies. The daughter-in-law of Eli, as she is about to give, give birth, the news comes to her. She goes into labor. That labor will kill her, but not before she gives birth to a child. And it says in verse 21, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured. And because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Then we pick it up in chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, 
And as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, for this account. It seems strange. It seems ancient. It seems totally disconnected from us and from where we are today. But Lord, you tell us that these things are written for us so that we may learn from their example. Lord Paul tells us in the book of Romans that these things are written so that we may be encouraged from you because you are the God of encouragement. And so, Lord, we pray that this word would be timeless and relevant. Uh, Father, help us not just look at the Philistines, but look into the mirror of your word and see ourselves. And, Father, I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Hannah said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. <laughs> I'm sure she didn't understand how literal that would be fulfilled or how quickly it would be. You see, when the Philistines and the Israelites thought they fought there on the field of battle, the Israelites were defeated and the ark was captured. And so this was a country against country, one army against another army. But in another way, from a cosmic sense, at least in the eyes of the Philistines, it's their God against the Hebrew God. And who won? Well, the Philistine God. Because the Philistines just, just kicked them. I mean, it was, a, it was an utter defeat. And so we see this unfolding here in chapter 5. The apparent victor, Dagon, ends up with a trophy. But then he wakes up the next morning and things have kind of been reversed. And this is meant to be for us, in some sense, humorous. All right? The author intended for people of faith to read this and to at least snicker to ourselves, if not laugh out loud. Because there's parts of it that are just comical. And as we laugh, we can laugh with the Lord. Because the psalmist tells us in Psalm 2... That he who sits in the heavens laughs at those who stand against him. The psalmist says that he holds them in derision. That he speaks to them in his wrath. Psalm 2 verses 4 and 5. So this is a humorous encounter, but listen, it is deadly serious. We can only laugh so far. And we'll see that. The ark's capture and God's judgment is a profound example of the mysterious way that God works. He defeated his own people. He saw that his ark was captured. He is absolutely working his purposes and plans out in the midst of all of this. It is the coolest thing to see. Now, the warning in the New Testament church is why we don't laugh too long and too hard. For First John, John tells the church, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. And our idols may not look like a merman. And they probably don't look like T.O. 500 feet down in the ground. But they're nonetheless real. And we need to be aware of that. 
And as I told the kids, let's be sure that our superheroes can stand. Be sure that that which you worship can stand on its own and does not need you to hold him or her or it up. And that's some of what we'll see here. Now, the big picture in this whole narrative that I talked about last week comes also from Hannah's prayer. There is none holy like the Lord, period. And he will not allow himself to be domesticated, boxed up, captured, made a prize, made a spiritual show and tell. He's, he's far beyond that and above that. But yet he is close enough to hear those who will humbly cry out, humbly cry out for repentance. That's just, it's a beautiful picture. So the reversal that we see here first as we look at chapter 5, and I started back in chapter 4, that first reversal that we see, if you're following along in your sermon notes there, is one of despair and delight. Now, it's kind of a reversed reversal because the despair is on the people of God and the delight is on the Philistines. But the despair comes from the voice of this nameless, yet I believe faithful woman that we see dying in childbirth at the end of chapter 4. We don't know her name. And like so many women of the Old Testament, I believe they're held up for us as, a, as an example, as a contrast to the unfaithfulness that's going on around them. So this poor woman, whoever she is, I believe in her dying moments, remembers God's promise that we touched on last week from the book of Leviticus, where God promised his people, I will make my dwelling among you. I'm reading from Leviticus 26. And my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. She remembered that. And her heart was broken because as she remembered that, she looked and she saw her unfaithful husband, both sexually and spiritually. She saw his unfaithful brother. She saw the lackadaisical compromised faith of her father-in-law. And she saw the spiritual... Death taking place before her eyes of her own people. And her heart broke. And as this boy is born, she names him, where is the glory of God? The glory of God has departed. Because she remembered also from Leviticus that God said, I will discipline you for your sins and I will break the pride of your power. So there is despair in Shiloh. But there's delight in Ashdod. And there's four or five major Philistine cities. If you look at a map, and I should have pulled one up, but I just didn't. Down on the western coast there of what we call the Holy Land. And these Philistine cities are down there near the coast. And this city of Ashdod is delighted at what's going on as we see there in chapter 5 as it begins to unfold. And they're delighting in this cosmic victory. Not only has their army won, but their God has won. And so they bring the ark in and set it up beside their God as a trophy. They're just adding to their collection. Because they're not monotheists, not by any stretch of it. The last thing you would hear a Philistine say is, our God is the only God. You would never hear them say that. And so they just add the ark to their collection. And they see it as a great victory because clearly the God who is powerful is the one who won and has taken captive this box, if you will. Now, Dagon, again, is probably the highest God in their pantheon. But even then, he's just another idol, just like the ark. Why would they not destroy it? What was the command that God had given to his people from the very beginning as they went into the promised land? Tear down those high places. 
destroy those altars. Commit to destruction those gods and those who follow them. The last thing God wanted for his people was for them to be syncretist. Just combining him with anything and everything else. But that's exactly what the Philistines were. They're syncretist. In less than a month, King Charles III will be coronated as, as the king of the United Kingdom. And he will go through the same, not, not the exact same coronation. Most experts say that his is not going to be nearly as grand of, of a deal as it was for his mother 70 years ago when Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953. I was reading this week, it took 45 minutes for that procession to pass by a single point. His will not be, because his is not nearly as, as, as glamorous. There's all kinds of stains already upon his reign, if you will. So anyway, when she was coronated, when she took that crown as the queen, the archbishop of the church of Canterbury came before her and he presented her the Bible. And he said to her, this is the most important book in the whole world. This is the royal law. And these are the oracles of God. And she took that Bible and as the sovereign, as the head over the Church of England, which the monarchy is, she professed and committed herself to be a defender of the faith. Now, King Charles has already said several years ago that he will not be a defender of the faith with that article. He will be a defender of faith or of faiths. Now, he's backed up a little bit since then. Because he obviously was catching some heat because of that. Nonetheless, he will make the same commitment that his mother did. But I just personally do not believe that he believes what his mother believed. He's a syncretist. And our culture loves syncretists. They do not like anyone who is bold enough to say, my God is the only God who really is God. So the question, just from a theological application standpoint, would be, do we believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God? Christians are monotheist. Now, the God of the Bible expresses himself, has revealed himself in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we believe this. And we proclaim this and we don't back away from it, not because we are narrow-minded or belligerent or arrogant. Not because we look down upon those of other faiths in that way. We hold to that truth because that is the historical, biblical record. That is how God has revealed himself. And the scriptures and history revealed that to us, confirmed to us in Jesus himself, in his perfect life. In his crucifixion, in his resurrection, his ascension, in the history and life of the church. We believe that because that's what the evidence points to. Culture loves syncretist. We are monotheist. So we will not stack our God up against yours and see them as equal. We cannot and will not do that. So there's despair and delight. But it's a reversal, like I said, in the wrong direction. Seems like the enemy's happy. God's people are destitute and desperate. But God is working through this, his plans and his purposes, 
because he's orchestrating this. He has brought it about. The second reversal we see begins to unfold there in verse 3. An important word that we see there is the word behold. But before we get to behold, now just notice something that's happened. Back in chapter 4, the ark was called the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Or it was called the ark of the covenant of or it was called, in, in a couple of other places there, the Ark of the Lord, or Yahweh. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, but now it's simply the Ark of God. So has it lost its power? Has it lost its luster? Has it lost its, you know, kind of that aura around it? Remember, the Ark didn't have any power in it itself anyway. Okay, that's the whole point. The power is not in that box covered with gold, no matter how ornate or beautiful it is. God is the power that's going, that's at work here. They've captured it. They've picked it up. These verbs are important here. They captured it. They took it. They brought it. And they said it. It is, in these words, helpless. Helpless. And they put it beside their God. But behold, I love that word. We don't use that word much. It's a good word to use. You'll get people's attention if you're in the middle of a sentence. You go, behold. I promise you they'll stop for just a second anyway and see what's up. All right? I promise. Try it. Try it this week at the water fountain. Behold. Okay. Well, here we have. Behold. They woke up there that morning. Dagon was on the ground before the Lord. So there he is. Something has happened. We're not told what. We know exactly what the Philistines know. All right? We just know that he was standing there last night. We get up this morning, and behold, he's face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But now it is the ark of the Lord. The ark of Yahweh. His, his proper name. Now this won't do, right? I mean, our, our superheroes need to be able to stand up on their own. But Dagon can't. And I couldn't help but think this week as I was reading this. One of my favorite Old Testament passages comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. And it's a picture of Elijah calling the prophets of Baal up to the top of Mount Carmel for this showdown. Right? You remember that? And they, here's my bull and here's your bull. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. The God who answers by fire, he is God. You go first. So the prophets of Baal went first. And it says in verse 26, They took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. I love this. <laughs> saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he is musing. Or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried out aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. So later that afternoon, but here's what it says. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So I just wonder if that morning the priest showed up for work, Dagon's face down, get up, buddy, 
Get up. Get back on your pedestal. How can we bow down if you're down? It doesn't say anything about that. I just wonder, okay? My mind wanders that way sometimes. Verse 3, they put Dagon back in his place, which is what every idol needs. They picked him up. They carried him. They put him back in his place so they could then have proper worship. In Isaiah chapter 46, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. And it cannot move from its place, we might add, unless it's knocked down. (laughs) And if one cries out to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Well, behold, guess what? It gets worse. Verse 4, when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time it's worse. The head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And and the word there is actually cut off or chopped off. Okay? You might read a commentary that says, well, it hit the head of the door, you know, and broke on its way. No. It was cut off, which was common for a conquered enemy to be demoralized by seeing that those who had been killed not only were killed, but were beheaded and had their hands and sometimes their feet chopped off. We'll see this later on under the reign of David. So it was not an uncommon practice for that to happen. So here is Dagon literally lying in pieces. And in the Hebrew language, it's, it's kind of cool because what, what it says there is only Dagon remained on Dagon. So his head's gone, his hands are gone, and what you have left is, is a blob of Dagon. Because that's really all you had to begin with. He didn't need his hands. He couldn't do anything with them. Could he hold himself up or pick himself up? He didn't need his head because the prophet Isaiah has already told us. He can't speak. He can't hear. So he didn't need any of that. It was only for appearance purposes. I mean, it's, you know, you can't really worship a blob. Well, you can if it's T.O. But anyway. um, So in verse (laughs) 5, look at verse 5. This is pretty interesting. So they don't, it doesn't say anything about them picking him up and putting him back in his place or any of that. It just says that. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So the pieces of Dagon are lying on the threshold. This is further proof of what I have said before, that sin makes you stupid. Sin just makes you stupid. Because here, instead of looking at the pieces of this God of theirs and reappraising the situation... They turn it into a ritual. Instead of assessing what's going on from from eyes that see things realistically, they look around and instead of humbly turning to God, they turn to the pieces of their idol with his head chopped off and his hand chopped off. And instead of seeing the superiority and the power that's demonstrated clearly before them, they just dignify this abomination. And we do that in our sin. 
We do that in our rebellion. We do that in our self-centeredness. We just we take that which is weak and worthless and esteem it and honor it. And it doesn't change its weakness or its worthlessness. We just raise it up in our own eyes. So they turn it into a ritual. It's astounding to see that happen. Now this is a preview, by the way, of something that's going to come later toward chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. I think it's a foreshadow, which we have from our perspective here. Just listen. David said to the Philistine, by the way, this is Goliath that he's talking to, a Dagon worshiper. We've run into Dagon worshipers before, by the way. What did Samson do to their worship service? Remember that? It was the temple of Dagon that he brought down on top of himself and all of them. Just, just kind of as a reminder. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Implied in that, like God did your idol. Just, we'll get to that. Here's the application that comes from this section. And I've touched on it earlier. If you want to turn there and just look at it with me as I read it in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It is appropriate for us to laugh, I believe, along with God, but only for a while. And only for so long. Here's what the old commentator Matthew Henry said about this passage. Talking about the collapse of Dagon breaking in pieces. He says, thus the kingdom of Satan will certainly fall before the kingdom of Christ. Error will fall before truth. Profaneness will fall before godliness. Corruption will fall before grace in the hearts of the faithful. He says, when Christ, the true Ark of the Covenant, really enters the heart of a fallen man, which is indeed Satan's temple, all idols will fall. Every endeavor to set them up again will be in vain. Sin will be forsaken and unrighteous gain restored. The Lord will claim and possess the throne. But pride, self-love, and worldly lust, though dethroned and crucified, they still remain with us. That's my sentence, not his. God will do his work in the hearts of his people. Right? We are being saved. And one day, praise God, the battle against sin will be over. But it will not be until we draw that last breath or until Jesus comes back. And until then, the stump of Dagon, the stump of idols, still lies there. And it wants to come to life. And we have to battle against it. And our God is not a fish man. But it can be just as ridiculous. It can be just as ridiculous and just as, just as weak. The various forms of modern idolatry are not going to look like that. We don't bow down to something like that here in our culture anyway. But our idols are the God of self. 
the God of pride, the God of materialism, the God of pride and ego, the God of politics, the God of science, the God of sex, success, the God of sex. It can be the God of our children. It can be the God of athletics. It can be the God of personal accomplishment or the accomplishment of our family. Here's the question still. Can your God stand up on his own? And I mean eternally. Can your God stand up? We must be sure that the one we worship doesn't need us to hold him up. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12 too, you know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. He's talking to the church. Outside of Christ, we are idolaters. And that idol that we most worship is the one in the mirror. And that's why through Christ, we've been crucified with him. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. Put that idol to death. There's another reversal. It comes as we look at this, and it's a contrast. It's a contrast between no hands and a heavy hand. (laughs) The defeated God utterly devastates with his powerful hand. In verses 6 through 10, what we've seen earlier is the hands of Dagon cut off and lying there on the floor. In verse, let's see, there in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. Down below that it says his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Down in verse 9, it says the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old. Later on it says down there in verse 11, the hand of God was very heavy there. So here's this picture. This headless, handless blob of Dagon laying on the ground, meeting the heavy hand of God. Heavy is the same word that where we get the word glory. It's the same word that was used to describe Eli's waistline. It's the same word, just a kind of a little alteration of it, that describes what this daughter-in-law, as she died in childbirth, lamented had left. Where is the weight? Where is the glory? Where is the heaviness? Well, we found it. (laughs) Here it is. It's coming down on you, Philistines. It's coming down on your cities. The hand of the Lord was heavy. And here we see God judging and inflicting his power upon the Philistines, both physically and psychologically. Notice what it says there, that they were afflicted with tumors. talking about the physical affliction, the sickness, the disease, whatever it is. And they were also terrified. So there's psychological going on here, too. And so the priests have been killed, the ark has been captured, Eli has died, there's a change going on there, and God is working every one of those things to his glory as he is bringing his hand down upon these who oppose him. Now the noun that's used there for tumor means to swell up. And most commentators believe that the combination of the tumors and the mice or the rats is probably something related to a plague like the bubonic plague. So there's this physical sickness that goes along there. They're swelling up in the, you know, in different parts of the body. Some commentators point out that this is a really nice way to talk about hemorrhoids. I don't, I'm just telling you what I read. But just think about it for a second, alright? I won't get graphic here, but just remember those stories that you hear sometimes about down in Florida? Where, you know, where these snakes are just all of a sudden running rampant and somebody all of a sudden finds a snake in their toilet. 
Well, just imagine that being rats. Just imagine you spending a lot of time there because you're sick. Well, you can take it the rest of the way. This is terrible. I mean, we can laugh about it a little bit, but we would not want to be in that place. I mean, God's hand is heavy upon them. Bringing physical judgment, mental judgment. The fear of the Lord is upon them, although they don't know really yet what exactly that is. So what do they do? Well, they take that show on the road. (laughs) What would you do? Now, I don't know what you think about the folks that live down there in Rougemont. I don't know what you think about the folks that live in Durham. You know, when I was growing up in Boone, we kind of laughed at the folks down in Wilkes County, you know. I mean, I know what would have happened if this thing showed up in Watauga County. We're going to move it down to Wilkes County right away. Okay? Well, that's what we see happening here. We have the Ark Road Show. And so what happens here is in verses 8, 8 and 9, they gather together the leaders. What are we going to do with the ark? Well, what should we do with it? I don't know. Let's just send it to the next city. So they pass it on down the road. What happens there? It's a very great panic. And the men are afflicted, young and old. Tumors break out on them. Well, what did they do there? Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more. Say, hit the road, Jack. So that's what they do in verse 10. They go to Ekron. And it says there that they came to Ekron and the people of Ekron cried out. They brought the ark around to us to kill us and our people. I don't know exactly how it went down, but I can imagine that the ECIC, that's the Ekron Community Improvement Council, meets them at the gate. You ain't bringing that thing in here. We've heard. We know what happened. You are not bringing that in my house. I don't know how it went down, but no way it's coming in here. And so it goes on the road. Which is just exactly another illustration of how sin makes us just not real smart. Because let's just pass it on. Let's just try to avoid it. Let's just, let's don't deal with this. Let's just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Let's just pretend it's not there. Or let's see if somebody else will take it. Not really addressing the issue. Then we have this final reversal. Look at verses 11 and 12. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. That's the fourth time we see the hand of God. And it is very heavy there. Verse 12, the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The word there, great panic, or a deadly panic. That word is described in other places in the, in the Old Testament of what happens when God inflicts himself on his enemies and on their armies. And it's used sometimes to describe confusion or tumult. It's just a deep, deep terror down in the soul of a man. And make no mistake, the Philistines understand exactly what the Israelites earlier had understood. God did this. The God of the Hebrews is doing this to us. They understood themselves to be under the attack of the Lord. But what is different here is that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, what did they say to each other? Come on, just man up and fight. 
Not now. (laughs) Not now. The song has changed now. Under the attack of God, they're terrorized. So what we see happening here is there is surrender. We give up. They're crying. Their cry went up to heaven. I don't think it's a cry to heaven. I think it's just pointed in that direction. They're just... Well, clearly these horizontal idols are not working. And in some way there's... There's just recognition. There's a cry out. It's not a salvific cry. There's no salvation here. But they're at least crying out to heaven. There's surrender. Why is there surrender? Because there's terror. Abject terror. Why is there terror? Well, because of death and disease, the consequences of sin. And why is that there? It is there because of the heavy hand of God. Now... Let me just wrap this up with kind of making a general application in this. I read this quote this week and I thought it was profound. The only, here's the way the writer put it. The only hope we have starts with the recognition that God's presence is a real problem for sinners. The biggest problem you may have this morning is God's presence. It is not to be trifled with. It is not to be played with. God is completely pure. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 5-4, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. So this ark road tour here, wherever it goes, judgment comes. And it is deadly. It is devastating. And here's what's tragic about this. When we are left to ourselves, instead of crying out to God, we try to run from Him or put Him away someplace. And that we see here that that will not work. The biblical record shows us that if the Philistines had repented and turned toward the Lord, then just like God did with the people of Nineveh, He would have responded favorably and blessed them instead of disciplining them And bringing death and destruction on them. But they didn't turn toward God. And so instead, God becomes a curse to them. And judgment comes on them. And the same is true today. The message of the gospel is sweet to some. And sickening to others. Right? I mean, it just is. Paul tells this in in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. So the aroma of Christ, picture, picture the incense, the holy incense going up to, into the nostrils of God, and he is pleased with that aroma. The Old Testament tells us over and over and over that God is pleased with the aroma of these sacrifices. So Paul tells us that we are in the nostrils of God, the aroma of Christ, a pleasing, pleasing scent to him. He goes on and says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it's the same aroma of Christ being lifted up to the nostrils of God. But on a horizontal level, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 2 says, To one it is the fragrance of death to death. To the other it is the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? God is a terrible God. When we consider his wrath. When we consider his holiness the way we should. It's a terrifying thing. Now our culture. 
And listen, some of you right now this morning may be saying, I'm not sure I like this Old Testament God too much. I like the God of love. I'm having a real problem with this God of tumors and rats and judgment and death. And the problem is when we, when we try to box God up into one particular Bible book, one particular Genesis, Exodus, or Leviticus, when we just look at God in one small setting and try to get the big picture of who He is just from that little bitty picture, we will not get the accurate picture of who God is. You have to look at the whole biblical record of how God has revealed Himself. It is not a different God in the New Testament from the one in the Old Testament. It is not an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love. And if we understand the biblical record that way, then we will understand what this same writer said that I referred to ago. There is no refuge from this terrible God except the refuge that is found in this terrible God. There is no refuge from this terrible God except the refuge found in this terrible God. And that refuge is what we see in the New Testament. Christ is the ark. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the place where God meets His people and speaks to them. And in Christ, we see the ultimate reversal. Do we not? We see the ultimate reversal. Peter put it succinctly in Acts chapter 3. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, the Old Testament God, Glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Amen, brother Peter. The ultimate reversal. Jesus was the stone that was rejected. The reversal is he has become the cornerstone. Jesus was the one who was tried as a criminal. It was reversed. He was raised as God. There is no salvation under any other because there is no other name given among heaven by whom we can be saved. That's the Old Testament God. Taking that just wrath and pouring it out on Jesus for those who will in faith trust Him and turn to Him. That's the ultimate reversal. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn going on 300 years ago. Depth of mercy, can it be? Could there be mercy reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? For me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face. Would not hearken to his calls and grieved him by a thousand falls. Cademan's call took that old hymn and added this little chorus in there. You're my only hope. The God of wrath is our only hope. Because we run to him and in his grace he pours that wrath out on Jesus in our place. So Wesley finishes his hymn with this last verse. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my sin lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. 
Weep. Believe. And sin no more. Let's pray. Father, do that work of repentance in us. Thank you for the lighthearted moments when we can look at the foolishness of idolatry. See how stupid sin makes people and laugh at it. But God, please, I pray that you'll help us look in the mirror of your word. And it will reflect into the center of our hearts. And we'll see where we have been so foolish, so self-centered. That God, by the folly of our own idolatry, we've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Incline us to repent. Let us, Lord, our soul, in our soul, lament our sin. God, help us, I pray, to weep, to believe, and to sin no more. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.